Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. I'm going to open with this prayer from St. Alfred, uh, which is really beautiful and can hopefully guide our study this evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. We pray to you, O Lord, who are the supreme truth, and all truth is from you. We beseech you, O Lord, who are the highest wisdom, and all the wise depend on you for their wisdom. You are the supreme joy, and all who are happy owe it to you. You are the light of minds, and all receive their understanding from you. We love, we love you above all. We seek you, we follow you, and we are ready to serve you. We desire to dwell under your power, for you are the King of all. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. But without further ado, let me introduce our speaker. Our speaker this evening earned his PhD in New Testament Studies and Early Christianity from Loyola University of Chicago. Dr. Stephen Smith currently teaches at Mundelein Seminary, where he serves as professor and chair of biblical exegesis. A Catholic revert, he attributes much of his journey back to Catholicism to the writings of the Fathers of the Church. He has written numerous articles, reviews, and books, including his highly regarded Lord Trilogy, The Word of the Lord, The House of the Lord, and The Face of the Lord. He is a frequent speaker for the ICC, especially for our weekly Gospel Reflections. You can find him at his website, thegodwhospeaks.com. Please welcome back to the Institute, Dr. Stephen Smith. Hi, everyone. Good to be back with you. So whether you're using a New American, English Standard Version, Revised Standard Version, as long as you have a Catholic Bible, we'll be in good shape. As you know, with me, usually it's going to be a tour de force. So have a notepad, have an open Bible. We are not sticking in Exodus at all. We're going to be grounded in Exodus, but we're going to be moving through a lot of scriptures. So tonight, as you know, the topic is Exodus chapter 24, the ratification of the Sinai Covenant. We're going to read that in just a minute, but I want to kind of set the stage for what we're going to do tonight. Uh, the subtitle of this talk is called The Mystery of Worship-Centered Unity, and I'm well aware of how Father Hezekiah and the Institute wants to position this talk at the outset of a deeper study of ecumenical councils, and I've presented this and have put it, this together with that in mind. One of the big ideas we're going to talk about tonight is that the law is from eternity and for unity. Let me say that again. One of the big ideas in tonight's talk, Fire on the Mountain, the mystery of worship-centered unity, is that the law was from eternity 
and for unity, our purpose. Our purpose tonight is to grasp the ratification of the covenant at Mount Sinai, specifically the ratification that we read about in Exodus 24, to understand this concept of the law as this gift, this worship-based gift. Now, um, one clarification, we're not going to really talk about the law or laws. We're not going to get into the 613 mitzvot. We're not going to really talk about the Decalogue, um, only in a sort of a passing way. Um, but I can give you a couple of resources if you want to do a deeper dive on the law, since we're kind of focused near the law. Um, one would be from um, a scholar whose name is Goran Larson, and I'll spell that for you. It's G-O-R-A-N, and it's Larson with two S's, so L-A-R-S-S-O-N. And that volume is called Bound for Freedom, the Book of Exodus in Jewish and Christian Tradition. So he looks at it from a number of different angles. Wonderful scholar. It's a full-length monograph. I've used it in a number of my classes. He really, Larson really gets it. So that's a, a wonderful resource. And then the other one would be from Pope Benedict XVI and his Jesus of Nazareth, Volume 1. Um, he has a nice section in there on Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And although it's not that long, he gives you a ton of information where he sort of compares Exodus and Matthew, the original Moses and the new Moses. One other little piece of contextual remarks before we read the scripture and really dive in. Um, to set the stage, it's sort of helpful, I think, to know what's in the book of Exodus, right? It's always important when we're studying any biblical book to have a sort of lay of the land of what's in the book. So if you have a pen, you may want to jot down just a little bit of note on structure. So for my part, I think you can break this book, this beautiful book of Exodus up into four parts, chapters 1 to 12, 13 to 19, 20 to 24, which is where we're vested, and 25 to 40. 12, 1 to 12, 13 to 19, 20 to 24, and 25 to 40. Let me give you a little subtitle for each one of those, and we'll be off and running. So 1 to 12 is where we meet Moses, the burning bush, his call, we get the plagues. We might think of this as the prologue to the story, yeah? And this is where um, we're, we get into that story of the captivity of God's people. So let's just call that the prologue. 13 and 19 is all about deliverance. So when we're into 13, we have the uh, institution of the Passover, um, the departure through the Red Sea, the miraculous departure through the Red Sea the time in the wilderness, the manna, and all of that, and then we arrive at Mount Sinai. Then the next two parts of Exodus, 20 to 24 and 25 to 40, are really the two gifts of Sinai. And I want to say that again, they're gifts. We don't often think of the law as a gift, but it truly is. So 20 to 24 is the giving of the law, the Decalogue followed by the particular ordinances. And it really is, as I said, and must be seen as gift from God. But it's not the only gift. The gift that follows is the gift of worship. In 25 to 40, you have all of those picayune, painstaking directions, very hard to read, to Moses and Aaron from God about how to construct the tabernacle. But at the end of that scenario in Exodus 40, God shows up in a mighty way in the glory cloud, and that's how the book ends. So that's an overall structure of the book. But as we begin now, um, we're going to look at Exodus 24. We're going to read it so that you can hear the text. And then 
you're going to have to follow me because I'm going to take you through a number of texts from Sirach into Genesis, and then we'll come back around near the end of the talk, only at the end in Exodus 24. Now, the reason I want to do that is I want to show you that there are many clues in Scripture beyond this particular chapter of Exodus 24 that point to this worship orientation of the law, that it's from eternity and it's for unity. But as I said, let's start with actually reading the Scripture. So open up with me, and we're going to read together Exodus 24, and I'm going to read for us verse 1 through 12. Please follow along with me. Then he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship at a distance. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not go up with him. Moses came up and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord that he has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose up early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 pillars corresponding to the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrifices and sacrificed oxen as offerings to the Lord. Moses took half the blood, listen to this, and put it in basins, and half of the blood he dashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of all the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we, we will do, and we will be obedient. Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people, So you have the blood going on the altar that is on God, so to speak, and then on the people, a unifying action, right? And said, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. A couple more verses. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, those are his two sons, and the 70 elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel and they saw the God of Israel. Under his feet, there was something like pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. Also, they beheld God and they ate and drank. Final verse, verse 12. Then the Lord said to Moses, come up to me on the mountain and wait there. And I will give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments, which I have written for their instruction. In the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Okay, so this is our text for tonight. And what we want to do now is to take a look at this by zooming out and looking at a number of texts in Scripture. The first is from the wisdom tradition, and I want to move us there quickly because we have a lot of Scripture to get to. So open in your Bible to the book of Sirach. Now, if you happen to have a non-Catholic Bible, you're not going to find it in there because these were not added by the Catholic Church. These were taken out at a later point during the Reformation. They weren't added. I don't have time to talk about the two canons, the uh, Palestinian and Alexandrian canon, but these were those seven Greek books that were part of the broader Jewish diaspora communities, Sirach, Wisdom of Solomon, Maccabees, Tobit, Baruch, and so on. Now, 
Turn to chapter 44. And what you're looking at here is what's called the sort of the Hall of Fame in Sirach. The book of Sirach is 50 chapters, and the last six chapters are given over to really extolling famous men and women who did wisdom. And so it goes through all these various figures from Noah all the way up to David and so on. And Sirach 44.19 says this about Abraham, and it's quite a quote to get us rolling. Here's what it says. Sirach 44.19. You ready? Abraham was the great father of a multitude of nations, and no one has been found like him in glory. This next part is why we're here. Abraham kept the law of the Most High and was taken into covenant with him. He established the covenant in his flesh, and when he was tested, he was found faithful. Okay, Sirach is a book that we know a lot about it from the prologue. It's written by the original grandfather in around 175 BC, and it's translated, we're told in the prologue, by the grandson, and then uh, dispersed in Greek, originally written in Hebrew, but the translation in Greek out to the diaspora community in Alexandria by the grandson. And there are clues in the prologue, which indicate that that is done right around 129 BC. Okay, so it's about 100 or so years before the birth of Christ. So it's long, long, long after the giving of the law, long after Moses and very long after Abraham. So he's got a perspective that he can look back at, at Abraham in a unique way here. Define what's striking about this. What does this sage say? Abraham kept the law of the Most High. Pardon me? How is that possible if Abraham is 400 years prior to the giving of the law at Sinai? There's a mystery here, right? How could he have kept the law if it was not yet given? And what we're looking at, folks, in some sense, is a kind of mystical Jewish interpretation. Because at about the time of Second Temple Judaism, so now we're talking about third century, second century BC, you get some very interesting books, both in the scriptures and beyond the scriptures. And this kind of speculation that Abraham was able mysteriously to keep the law, or that the law was given way, way back at the time of creation, is more and more common. You see it in the book of Jubilees, you see it in other writings as well. So what I'm getting at here is while we're conditioned and used to thinking of the law being given in Mount Sinai, here we have an inspired book of scripture that says, hey, guess what? In some sense, Moses went up and he received it on the mountain, as we just read. But in a deeper sense, that's just the written aspect of the law. The law goes all the way back to creation itself. Uh, some of the Jewish traditions put it on the sixth day, so that as man is brought into creation, he already has the law before him. That's how Abraham could have mystically kept the law. So that's kind of interesting. Now, let's go back to Genesis. And as I said, what I want to do is look at a number of texts that I think are going to point in the direction that this passage in Exodus 24 is all about worship, all about worship, that God gave the law from eternity for unity, for the purpose of uniting his people in worship. Okay. So let's start in the beginning, right? Genesis chapter one. So look at Genesis chapter one. We all know the text, but let's read it, right? Genesis chapter one, verse one. Oh, should I read it in English, not Hebrew? Okay. Uh, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was formless and void, covering the face of the deep, while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And now we're off and running into the so-called six days of creation. Now, one of the questions that comes up around this text, of course, is what is the meaning of these six days of creation? And, and what is the backdrop in which this text is given? And what the common way that this was read in the 18th and 19th centuries was simply as a legend, right? This was done by the so-called German school, the mythical school, uh, often called the mythic school, except that my argument would be that this text is better read, not mythically, but mythopoetically. I've um, got a new book coming out, I'm really excited about in 2023, called Gardens of Meaning, Myth, Poetry, and Symbol in the Bible. And what I'm trying to do in that book is help us reclaim the word myth, which is kind of a dirty word for us who read the Bible, because it, it smacks us so much legends and you know fable and all of that. And my approach is um, obviously orthodox, but looks at a very different word, mythopoetic. I want to tell you what I think is going on mythopoetically in Genesis 1. So I'm sure if you stuck around the Institute, you're familiar with the name Julius Wellhausen. Yeah. Show of hands. You at least know who he is. You know that he was responsible in many ways for setting the trajectory of how the Pentateuch was read with source criticism. And in many ways, he really saw this book alongside other Canaanite myths like the Enuma Elish, which is a creation story. And what I try to do in the book is look beyond these, the German school to other figures like Joseph Ratzinger, Louis Boyer, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, um, and a number of figures that really help us to, to get our minds right around, around this creation story. So to say that Genesis 1 is mythopoetic is not to say that it's a fable or a myth. Actually, the word mythopoetic, which um, was not invented by Tolkien, really means that the in scriptural terms, that that text is not less true, it's more true, that there's something grand and epic and symbolic in the text, which needs a greater kind of language. So the first thing we need to do is have the right understanding of the language that's in play. Now, what about these other creation stories? How many of you have heard that, you know, there's a lot of parallels between the Genesis account and some of the creation accounts? You can get this impression that, well, you know, does that, what's then original in Genesis? Was it just borrowing from these other stories? And a couple of things that need to be reported. Firstly, I've heard some Christians say, well, you know, Genesis was the first story and these other pagan stories copied from it. And that's just patently false. So we can't say that, you know, Genesis was first and then they misunderstood it or they wanted to go their own way and celebrate their gods because many of these stories do precede the book of Genesis. But that does not mean, hear me well, that Genesis was in any way copying them. What I think is going on in Genesis is that the inspired author is thumbing his nose at these pagan stories and saying, no, that's your tale, but that's not what God was doing when he created the world. And I could give you a number of categories, but there's three or four, I think, major differences that need to be reported here. Number one, in these pagan accounts, there is no accounting for the actual beginning of the world. Let me say that again. In the pagan accounts, there is no actual accounting for how the world came to be. You enter into these stories, 
in what I like to call act one, scene three, or act one, scene four. There's no big bang. They're not interested in telling that story because they're not really about what we just read in Genesis, that the one God created the world. They're telling the story like the Enuma Elish of how the God Marduk ascended to his throne. So it's really kind of an etiology of this god Marduk, at least the Enuma Elishas, this Babylonian account. And it's very different from Genesis. Genesis is a story that's beautiful. You have one personal living god who enters into creation in a fatherly way. And the gods that you find in these other, um, like the Babylonian accounts, are really more like monsters, folks, than, go- than gods. Um, there's treachery, there's rape, there's murder. There's backbiting, there's stealing, there's all these sorts of things going on. And all of that is to say, it plays out sort of like a very nasty episode of Game of of Thrones, where there's Marduk trying to leap over all these other gods and people to grab the power and grab it, he does. In fact, to get the power, he splits his grandmother, who's a demon goddess, fertility goddess, whose name is Tiamat, T-I-A-M-A-T. He splits her in two and she's a sea goddess. So once she's split into her belly splits open and you have the waters above and the waters below. Oh, that sounds familiar, right? And so, so the point is here that Genesis is, seems to be very intelligent and very aware of these pagan creation accounts, but it's thumbing its nose. It's not the many gods, Marduk and all the others fighting for power. It's the one God who has no competition. Uh, it's not a story of given in violence and darkness, but a story of light and life and joy. It's not a story where fertility is a curse, but fertility is a blessing. As I said, we can go on and talk about about all of the differences. Now, what does this have to do with Exodus 24? Well, stay with me, because what happens is in Genesis 1, as the um, divine author, the beautiful author of Genesis, lays out the story, it doesn't end at Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. That's not the end of the story. So I want to read for you Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. This is the true ending of the Genesis creation account. Are you ready? It's Genesis 2, 1 through 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished in all their multitude. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, made it holy, set it apart, right? Because on it, God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. So the chapters and verses in scripture come in around the 12th and 15th centuries, respectively. They're not in the original text, okay? So what you see there in terms of Genesis 2, 1 through 3, that's not there. This is the real end of the creation story that we've just been looking at or looking at the beginning of it. And that's important because that whole story that I just described as being so distinct, thumbing its nose at the pagan darkened stories, is a story about worship. The Sabbath is not simply a day when God, you know, rests. First of all, God is not tired. He is, in a human sense, the Michelangelo who creates this perfect creation and then steps back and says, and it is very good, okay? And the whole notion of Sabbath is much bigger than, you know, um, you know putting our feet up and watching a football game on Sunday and making sure we go to Mass, right? It's about entering into the Sabbath rest of God, entering into the intimacy of the Trinity, entering into union and communion with God. We get this from our Jewish brothers and sisters. 
And so the point here is that Genesis 1, the creation story, is not telling us how God created the world. Listen, it's telling us why God created the world. And unlike the pagan stories in which the world is up and running for thiefdom and treachery, in God's story, it's for mercy and for love and above all, for worship. Creation exists for God's pleasure and for his worship, that we would join him in this Sabbath communion, enter into that seventh day with him. Okay. And I have a quote here from uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, who wrote a wonderful book called In the Beginning, and he makes this very clear as well. Listen to what he says. The biblical creation account is marked by numbers that reproduce not the mathematical structure of the universe, but the interior, the inner design of the fabric, so to say, the idea with which it was constructed. So he's alerting us to the fact that the numbers, and there's various numbers, but the big one is seven, is a clue to the meaning of what it's all about. And he ends by saying this, creation is oriented to the Sabbath. Again, this is Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger in a book called In the Beginning, uh, A Catholic Understanding of the Creation and the Fall. And, um, and a wonderful book, wonderful little book you can pick up from uh, Ignatius Press. But that quote tells you all that you need to know, right? Creation is ordered to the Sabbath, which is the sign of the covenant. That's right. The sign of the covenant between God and humankind. Well, we're studying a covenant here tonight in Exodus. But in order to understand that one, that's why we're looking at this primordial one. So from the very outset, the creation and the covenant that God gives at that time is all ordered around worship. Now, one of the things I go into in uh, this new book coming out, Gardens of Meaning, is this mystery of seven. And I don't have time to do that with you tonight here. I can take questions. But there's many clues in Genesis 1 that this number seven is this number of worship. And it's not just the text that we read in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, although that's the major clue. All the way through chapter 1, there are sevens hidden in the text. I don't know if you knew that or not. Genesis 1, verse 1, in Hebrew, is seven words. Genesis 1, verse 2, is 14 words. Not a coincidence. There are a number of key words like earth and water and air, other words that repeat in multiples of seven, 14, 21, 35. It's as if the author is saying to us in many ways, pay attention to this blueprint of creation because it's all pointing towards the Sabbath. So this is, I think, I know a little bit removed from what we're talking about tonight, but I'm trying to give you the biggest picture I can from the very beginning. And that is to say that if we read Exodus 24 as not simply a bunch of do's and don'ts, but as this beautiful gift of the law, a gift that brings God's people together in unity for worship, then it shouldn't surprise us that at the very beginning of it all, this was God's plan in the very creation. In other words, there should be some sense of unity between this later covenant that God makes with Moses and the primordial covenant. And that's exactly what we see, that there's this worship pattern already in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we see that later in the book of Exodus, in Exodus 24. Now, let's move in to the book of Exodus, but to chapter one. I have so much more to show you. We've barely begun. Okay, Exodus chapter one. Now we're in the book. Now we're in the book 
and we're pointed towards that covenant, but we're still a long way off. Chapter one. So um, in chapter one, verse one, this is what we read. Exodus chapter one. These are the names. Shemaoth. Uh, that's the name of the book in Hebrew. Shemaoth. Shem just means name. So these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, with Jacob, right? And then with each with his own household. And then you get the names of the 12 tribes. Reuben, the firstborn, Simeon, secondborn, Levi, Judah, fourthborn, and so on. Okay. Now, so with this, we move out of the book of Genesis, and it had ended, of course, with Joseph sold in slavery down into Egypt. He's down there, right? And now it continues and picks up the story. It says, hey, we're, we're still continuing that story. We've got the sons of Jacob, who's the grandson of Abraham, right, down in Egypt. So I should add, just as an aside, that there are at least a couple of meanings of the name uh, Israel in Scripture, because this is mentioned right at the beginning of the text, the sons of Israel. So I want to give you, just as an important aside, three meanings of Israel, okay? Number one is the man Jacob. That's right. Before we have a nation of Israel, we have the man Jacob, heel grabber. I will not let you go until you bless me. Genesis 33, right? Where he holds on to the angel of the Lord. And his name is changed to Yitzrael, one who struggles with God and prevails. Actually, it's one who struggles with God and man and prevails. And that's a beautiful thing in Judaism is this notion of struggling with God and hanging on to him. That's why Jacob, Israel, is the father of the nation. He epitomizes that from his very, from the womb onward he does. So number one, Jacob, Israel. Number two, the nation, as we are com coming to see at Exodus 24 and throughout the early history of Israel, Israel refers to the nation made up of those 12 tribes. That's the one we know for a lot of the scripture. However, there's a third definition. You should be aware of this when you study the prophets or when you go to mass and you're hearing Isaiah or any of the other prophets, Israel at that point in salvation history, after the 900s BC, so after Solomon, Israel comes to refer not to the whole nation, but to the, that northern community of the 10 tribes, the so-called lost tribes of Israel. And that's important. So that's a big distinction. And that's referring to that, that divided kingdom there. In any event, the book begins with the naming of the 12 tribes. And again, it tells us we're still in that Abrahamic story. Um, what's really interesting, I just uh, found, uh, found this out in researching this topic, that the list of the names that I just read in Exodus 1 is inverted from the one that's given earlier in Genesis 46. If you're really into the naming and the structure, you can look at it as Genesis 46, 8 through 27. Uh, so it doesn't start there with Reuben. It's a different ordering. And so Victor Hamilton, brilliant scholar, pointed this out, that what you get is a chiasm in Exodus 1. Because remember, Jacob has uh, different wives. So what you get in this version is Leah's sons, and then Rachel and her maidservant, and then Leah's maidservant. And I was scratching my head thinking, why would it do that? That's kind of a strange, like, why have Leah, Leah's maidservants, and then Rachel right in the middle there? And that, that's kind of chiastic structuring. And so often in a chiasm, you know, like that hourglass figure, it's what's in the center that is meant to be uh, the kind of essential meaning. So I think there's something there 
about um, about Jacob and Rachel because it's the one he loved. Um, just kind of something worth worth pondering there. Why is Rachel in the middle? There's something about this this marital love that is uh, that the Book of Exodus wants to bring out. Onward though, another clue in Exodus one is in verse eight. In verse eight, we read, "Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who knew Joseph not." Now, what could this inform us about this uh, ratification of the covenant at Sinai? Well, let me unpack this a little bit for you. To say that there is a king that arose or a pharaoh that arose in Egypt that knew Joseph not means that we have to go back to the Joseph story. And I know that for many kids and maybe even adults, the story of Joseph, Joseph is this glad drama with colorful robes attesting to God's benevolent justice you know, what you intended for bad, God intended for good. And we get the impression that Joseph is just this, you know, this great kid, poor guy, his brothers hate him. And he's kind of like this superhero for young boys and all that. And uh, a number of years ago, Leon Cass, very famous biblical scholar, teaches at the University of Chicago, smashed that two bits for me. Um, And I'm going to smash it for you a little bit tonight. Now, I love Joseph. He is a type of uh, Jesus's earthly father. So, you know, he's a great character, but he's not perfect. And Leon Cass pointed this out, that when you go back to the story of Joseph, you know, we're going to skip about, you know, he gets sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up in Egypt. He ends up rising through, you know, Pharaoh's ranks. And then what happens is there's all this famine in the land, right? And so the people come to him, both the Egyptians and the Israelites, and they're like, hey, Joe, you know, help us out here. Like, we're having a tough time. And first they sell their livestock. And Joseph says, okay, I'll take that. And I'll give that to Pharaoh. And then we'll help you out. Right. And then the next thing Joseph does is they come to him and they say, well, our lands, that's, that's the next thing we can give you to kind of try to survive here. And Joseph, the administrator does all that. Okay, here you go. And finally, they're like, just take us, make us slaves and and, and we'll survive and then, you know, take care of us, give us some food. And so that's what Joseph does. And on the surface, it sounds like, hey, he's solving the problem. He's what, what else could you have him do? He's helping keep people alive. The Egyptians, his own people. Sounds pretty smart. Leon Cass, who uh, is a brilliant uh, biblical scholar, wrote a book called The Beginning of Wisdom on Genesis, goes through the story and says, not so fast. Not so fast. Cass sees Joseph, especially in Genesis 47, as an anti-Moses figure and as a foil to, to Moses. What he's getting at here is this notion that, you know, good old Joseph seems to land people in greater trouble. And there's a, there's a great leadership lesson here, I think, folks, because, you know, he's doing the best he can, but he's not Moses. And he's not David. And he's thinking, and in the way Leon Cass says, as an administrator, not as a man of God. You know, he's got he's got the Pharaoh. He can, you know, call up on the phone and say, Hey, Pharaoh, you know, how does this sound? And this Pharaoh apparently seems to know Joseph and all as well, until there's a new one that comes along that doesn't know him and says, I don't care what kind of deal you make. And so what Leon Cass is getting at is that as Exodus begins, it's not the fearsome nation of Egypt that ultimately lands them in hot water. But Cass believes in some sense, it's good old Joseph, or maybe not so good old Joseph, 
who's short-sighted in his thinking. And there's a great line that Cass has. He says, rather than having a heart for God, Joseph has an administrator's heart. He's a man, he's a middle manager. He's solving problems and not thinking of obedience to God. And so that's very interesting that the book begins then with this situation, which now there's a new Pharaoh. And now there's a sense in which, I don't know if you want to call it moral relativism or situation ethics, but you know, rather than listening to the voice of God, it seems in which the turmoil that comes the way of the Israelites is the result of, in Cass's terms, and I quote, making bad family decisions in crisis, making bad family decisions in crisis, leading to the need for deliverance. So that's kind of a very interesting, um, that's kind of a very interesting move in the beginning of the book, which tells us that not only is all not right, but maybe there's something in the heart of Joseph that wasn't, wasn't intended on worshiping God, or at least was caught up in this drama with his boss, with Pharaoh. And uh, there's other clues that maybe he was more uh, Egyptian-hearted than Israeli, in the sense uh, that when you read Joseph's story, he dies at 110 years old, the same age as the ideal Egyptian age. He's buried in a coffin. That's an Egyptian uh, symbol. And so there are a number of clues in the book that part of what seems to come off here before we even get into the Exodus story is that God-centered worship, right, that Abraham did so well. I mean, he was the one who was willing to sacrifice his own his own son. And then you, you have a great-grandson here who says, well, no, we're in trouble. You forget about God's law and God's ways. We'll just kind of, let's just roll up our sleeves and solve the problem. And that worked. The problem was it worked only for a time until someone came along, a politician who said, you know, we're going to just change this. And that's a lesson here, right? That when we derivate from worship, when we derivate from God's plan with our families, with our lives, we may think we're solving problems, but we can often end up in deeper ones. Okay, let's move on. Lots more to look at. Let's turn to Exodus chapter three. Now, this is a really cool passage because it's here that God calls Moses. Now we're moving, now we're beginning to move closer to Mount Sinai. In fact, we're on Mount Sinai. I'm going to show you this. So um, Exodus chapter three, verses seven and following. Listen to what we read here. Then the Lord said, Exodus 3, seven, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. And that's a good thing, right? Yeah, who are in Egypt and have heard, I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters, which I again would say, and Joseph played a role in that. I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out to that good land, a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, etc. Okay, so now we know that God is watching this, he's seeing it, and he's going to act. But in the middle of that, Moses has questions. You know, I'm not a great speaker. My brother did a, you know, a master's degree in speech. You may want to go with him. I've got a speech impediment. I, I don't know about this. I kind of stutter, you know. But in Exodus 3.10, Moses asks a good question. And here's the question. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? You know, I'm a murderer. You know, I've got a temper. I'm a sheep herder. Who am I that I should go to the most powerful man in the world and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Watch what God says next. It's a clue to why we're here tonight. God says, I will be with you, and this will be the sign for you that I have sent you. 
when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Now, this next part that I'm going to give you a uh, very much owe to Cardinal Ratzinger in his great book, The Spirit of the Liturgy. He's got a whole section on Exodus. And this divine utterance of God is very, very telling. It really is, if you look closely at it, for two reasons. Number one, the sign is future-oriented. You know, God doesn't say to Moses, go, and I'm going to write my name across the sky, and then you'll know I'm with you, right? I mean, there are signs, but the signs are actually for Pharaoh, not for Moses. They're for Pharaoh to repent, but, you know, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Talking about those 10 plagues, right? What's the sign for Moses, folks? Look at it. It's future-oriented. The sign is, I will be with you. That's the only sign you're getting right now in the present. The future-oriented sign is come back to this mountain. And that's my second point here. Did you catch that? Come back to this mountain. God says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Yes, where God meets Moses is in anticipation of the Sinai covenant, that great gift of the law, which anticipates in the new covenant, Jesus Christ, who is the new law, God says, this mountain. So you're going to have to trust me that I'm going to do this. And then the sign will be, you're going to come back to this mountain. Isn't that great, Moses? And Moses is probably like, well, how about a sign for right now? I'm like, I need one now, you know? I'm trying to get through COVID here, you know? I'm trying to figure out if I can do this. And God says, no, no, not today. The sign is go and do this. I'll be with you and then bring them back to this mountain. So something about that mountain, this mysterious mountain of Sinai, is itself going to be the sign. And indeed, we'll see in a few moments, when we come back with the people of God to Mount Sinai, well, then we're going to see the sign. And that sign, which we're going to see in a moment, is that ratification ceremony and this beautiful union between God and his people, worship, worship from eternity and for unity. On to chapter four, on to chapter four. Just one word here about chapter four, and that is in Moses is still struggling with understanding what to do and how it's all going to play out. And he, God says in Exodus 4, 22, you shall say to Pharaoh, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say, let my son go that he may worship me. Did you catch that? All of Israel in this scene is described as the Bekor, B-E-K-O-R in Hebrew, firstborn son, which has special status. The firstborn is not like all the other sons. doesn't mean he's loved more emotionally or psychologically, but it means he has a privileged status. He becomes the father's heir. He's the one who's got a double portion of the father's will and testament. But look what God says. You will go to deliver my son. This is a family story. And they are all his firstborn. All of Israel, all those people down there, all the sons of Jacob, they're down in Israel, all of them, men, women, young, old, are all the firstborn of God. No favorites here, right? No favorites. Very quickly, Exodus 12, another clue. Here, once the confrontation with Pharaoh reaches its apex and Pharaoh, you know, sees all these signs, and then eventually you've got the sign of the death of the firstborn. Okay, let them go. 
right? And then they go and then he chases after them. But it's in Exodus 12 that again, we see this mode of worship showing up in the story, right? Exodus 12, three and four. It's not just putting the blood on the doorpost to get them out of Egypt, but as a sign of worship, a perpetual liturgy, the Passover, Exodus 12, three and four, tell all the congregation of Israel on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to his father's house, a lamb for the household. And if a lamb, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. Do you see that communal dimension there? It's like, it's not only just your household, but you have to care for your neighbors as well. We're in that story where all of creation, right, is fashioned in God's image for worship together, right, from eternity for unity. And by the way, folks, this is one of these beautiful moments in Israel's history when they are all united, is when they celebrate this Passover liturgy, just as we as Catholics are united when Jesus in the upper room calls together the 12 apostles, re-imaging the 12 tribes, right, and institutes the new Passover, which is what he does. Okay, finally, we're coming closer now, Exodus 19, just one verse here. Exodus 19, just before the fire falls on the mountain, and it all begins, just one chapter away now from the giving of the law, there's one more important clue prior to the giving of the law in Exodus 19, and it's verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, before this great covenantal ratification takes place, God tells them, you as a nation, you, my firstborn, Israel, are to be priests, priests to one another and priests ultimately to the world. Priests offer sacrifice. Priests offer sacrifice. In the ancient world, worship is not praise and worship. That's wonderful. But in the ancient world, worship is sacrifice. Worship is sacrifice. And that sacrificial offering that God has intended at the beginning of the story of the Bible here, right, requires priests. And if you actually go back and look at Genesis very carefully, not only do you see that you have this Sabbath uh, orientation of creation, but Adam himself is a priestly figure. He's called to uh, till and keep the garden. But in Hebrew terms, shamar, avad, and shamar are priestly terms. Adam's a priestly figure. Eden is a temple. Um, written more about this in my book, The House of the Lord. But again, back in Genesis, even before we get to this covenantal scene, we can see once again from God's eye, from the very beginning, creation is oriented towards worship to unite his people. And it's not going to be thwarted. Genesis 3 comes along. He's got a, he's, the plan continues, right? We're out of the garden now. Now we're into Noah. That kind of works out well, but also not so well because sin continues. Now he takes Abraham. And then we go down through the story of Joseph. That doesn't work out so well. God's still focused on worship, right? He gets Moses. Moses is afraid. Come back to this mountain where you will worship, right? And now as we're getting closer, he's revealing more and more of that plan, which includes a holy nation and a royal priesthood. Okay, now we're into Exodus 20. The first three commandments of the 10 are all rooted in worship. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 11. I'll just abbreviate. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. 
Number two, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And number three, which takes us back to where we started tonight, to the story of Genesis 1 and creation, you shall remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth, right? And rested on the seventh day. All that God did in creating the world, right, was aimed from the very beginning at worship. From eternity for unity, bringing his people together in worship, right? It's not simply about giving of do's and don'ts, giving of laws. It's all nested in worship. That's the scene in Genesis chapter 1, and it's echoes here in Exodus chapter 20. Now, finally, finally, we arrive back at Exodus 24. We took a look at a text from Sirach, which tells us that Abraham kept the law of the Most High, which is another way of saying that this law of God was the dream of God and the plan of God from the very beginning of the world. Then we went into Genesis, and we took a quick run through there, but we saw a couple of key things, right? I think, firstly, we saw that this whole notion of the creation story is very different than the secular and pagan stories from the ancient world. It's not about, Genesis 1 is not about how God created the world. It's not. Forget about, you know, how old the world is. You're not going to get that from Genesis. That's not the story it's telling. Genesis 1 is not about how God created the world, but why God created the world. And that is for worship, right? And then we move our way forward through the text of Genesis and Exodus, seeing numerous clues in which this worship motif continues again and again, right? Not the worship of a taskmaster, though the worship of a loving father who wants to draw all of his children together, right? From eternity for unity. It's worship. It's not legislation that ultimately unites God's people. As important as that is, it's ultimately an act of sacrifice, an act of worship that unites God's people with him. So look at Exodus 24, verse 1. We're nearly done. Exodus 24, 1, God says to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, and worship from afar. So once God gives all the law, now it's ratified, it's sealed in covenantal form. He's in, brought into relationship with them. They're brought into relationship with him, and it's going to be solemnized in an act of worship. And here's Moses. But guess what? Here's the priesthood too, because Aaron, his brother, is the initial, the great first high priest. And the other two figures there, they're not obscure. They are his two priestly sons. So you have the lawgiver, Moses, and you have three priests. So again, the gift of the law is not separate from worship. It's nested in worship. It's rooted in prayer. It's rooted in sacrifice. It's rooted in unity. Along with Moses, you have, uh, as I said, Aaron and his sons, but you also have what are called the zakain, Z-A-Q-E-N, which are the elders. Um, and they're first mentioned all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, where we first meet Moses. And these are important if we're talking about ecumenical councils, which we're going to be over the next many months, right? It's not, we tend to think of the story as just about God and Moses. God gives a law to Moses. I'm trying to shatter that, 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 that two-dimensional understanding that sometimes we've picked up over the years from various sources. 
it, yes, Moses is the great lawgiver, but there's something much greater here, right? All of creation is invited into worship. And then when we come to Sinai, we're still in that same story of worship. And so it's not just Moses, it's the priesthood. And then it's the representatives of all the people all gathered at Sinai, folks, for this great unifying event in worship, right? So in Exodus 3.16, go and gather the Zakain of Israel. Already God is thinking of this legislation and this gift of the law and this, if you want to call it, proto-ecumenical council. And he sees that all of the leaders have got to be like-minded. But how do you get a bunch of people together to be like-minded? You know, how, how, get get five you know five kids together and try to see where are we going for dinner, right? Or five people, right? It's hard, but God knows this, right? But He's not doing it by by just asking them to compare notes and to think about it and talk and you know let let's come up with some kind of a plan. No, it's God's initiative, and the initiative is worship. This is how He ultimately wants to unify His people from all of creation. Now, um, the other thing that's interesting is you have this mention of the 12 tribes. Um, look at, again, Exodus 24, 1. Moses wrote down all the words of the law. He rose early in the morning, and he builds an altar. Now, that's interesting. First of all, he's not a priest, right? Secondly, the ordinances for the priesthood aren't given until you get into Exodus 26, 27, 28. All in there, you get the vestments and all that other stuff. So somehow, in his communion with God, or may, we might say his spiritual instincts, he understands, just like Abraham built an altar, just like Noah built an altar, there needs to be an act of sacrificial worship in order to seal this. Without it, we're not unified. We're not together. We come together in unity around the Lord's table. Now, finally, to anticipate the new covenant, I wanted to point out something that maybe you've seen, maybe you missed when we read Exodus a little bit earlier tonight. Did you catch the numerical connections between the Old and the New Testament? Because the story that we're talking about tonight, yes, it is Exodus 24. It's the ratification of the Sinai covenant. But you can see embedded in that story all sorts of connections between the Moses of Exodus and the new Moses of the Gospels, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me point some of them out to you. Firstly, Exodus chapter 24 has the one. It has Moses. He is in the central role. Make no mistake about it. You have the one in the Gospels, the divine son. In Exodus 24, you have the three, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, all priestly figures. In the Gospels, you have Jesus's inner circle, not just of disciples and not just apostles, but priest apostles, Peter, James, and John. Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Peter, James, and John. You have the 12 pillars that are set up in Exodus 24, and you have the company of the 12 in the Gospels. And then finally, you have the Zakane, which are the 70 in Exodus 24, and you have the 70 which are sent out on mission to teach and to heal. And then it all comes down to this in Exodus 24, 8 to 11. There is a sacrificial meal. Moses takes the blood. Where does the blood come from? Comes from a sacrificial animal, huh? Once again, worship. And he throws it on the people and says, behold, the blood of the covenant. It's not enough to simply read the law and say, yes, 
They need to have be participating in this act of worship. And that's exactly what it is. Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. Then Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 went up. And only then, folks, do they see the God of Israel. Only then. Reminds us of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, Jesus Christ says. And this original seeing, the moment when Israel unified together with the one, with the three, with the 12, with the 70, all together unified, is at a sacrificial meal. Something highly, highly Eucharistic, highly, highly Eucharistic in this Sinai passage. And this tells us much, right? For the kind of unity that the church gives us is not simply in legislation through right truth, right? But the councils that gather, gather together on their knees, right? From the Jerusalem Council to Vatican II and beyond. And if they're not on their knees, then they ought not to be doing anything at all. Because we see the pattern from the beginning. The pattern from the beginning, from Sinai, from from Genesis onward, is that unity is not man-made. It's God-given, huh? Unity is not man-made. It is God-given. It's a gift of God. The law is a gift of God. The councils are a gift of God. So tonight, I think we've barely scratched the surface in one of the greatest scenes in the Old Testament. It's not just Moses. I want you to put out of your mind tonight, as great as Moses is, that it's not mighty Moses who goes up in some kind of, you know, Han Solo fashion, gets the law and brings it down, and now we're off and running. I've tried to show you in numerous ways that it's the plan of God from the very beginning of creation, really from eternity, right, from eternity to unify his people. God is always about bringing a unity that cannot be brought about by human hands, human minds, human arrangements, human ideas. God's unity comes about when his children are united and on their knees. It's not blueprints. It's not edicts. It's not moto proprios. It's not, it's not any of these things, as important as they are. It's liturgy that unites us. It's liturgy that united the creation from the very beginning of the Sabbath. It was liturgy that united God's people at Sinai. It's liturgy that guided the church across all the ages. And it's liturgy in the Gospels that united the 12 apostles whose successors continue to guide us to greater unity. To God be the glory forever and ever, man. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Turn it back over to you. Thank, Thank you, you, Dr. Smith. Wonderful. You told us at the beginning that uh, we were in for a tour de force, and you certainly did not disappoint. That was excellent. Um, thank you so much for that. This is such a wonderful study because it seems to me that we focus so much on the discontinuity, or we can be tempted to focus on the discontinuity between old and new covenant, uh, that, we that maybe we're not looking for these clues of the continuity and the fulfillment um, so you've given us a lot, uh, a lot to take with us into further study. So thank you so much. And uh, it, it's a great foundation for, for our continued study uh, of the councils going forward. So thank you. Without further ado, Dr. Smith, we're going to start with this question from Kira. 
She asks, if Moses, Aaron, and his sons in the 70 had seen God in Exodus 24, how could any of them have participated in the Golden Calf episode? Oh, that's a double whammy question. You know, um, well, Moses doesn't. Let's be clear. Uh, Moses is up on the mountain and he's like, what in the world is going on with you people? I'll leave you for like six weeks and the wheels are coming off here, right? Yeah, so Moses is not involved in this. But, you know, it is a puzzle that Aaron is involved. If you read through the text, uh, he he is involved and he is, he is certainly complicit as a leader. And there's a warning there, right? There certainly is a warning about forgetfulness about God. Uh, and it, it's not my place to to either defend or um, or anything else with Aaron. But what I would say, I think, is the, the way that that text of, of Genesis uh, 28, 29, 30, 31 works there um, with this story is something like there's this movement away from God that rises up like a tide. And I think Moses, I mean, Aaron just gets caught in this. And that's not to say he's not complicit. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is, in some sense, it's much bigger than what any one leader can, can forestall. It seems as though, um, but it also seems as though, in some sense, what, you know, what, what happens there, God brings a greater good out of it. Because what happens is then the Levites rise up and they slay these wicked people who are defiling God with this image of a golden bull. And then God says to them, you have ordained yourselves priests on this day, which is a way of saying you have you know, shown yourself to be fully consecrated and unafraid. They kind of do something that maybe Aaron doesn't have the, the power to do or the strength to do. But I wanted to mention one other thing before we leave this question, since um, a great question, you mentioned seeing God. And this is a great mystery that I'd like to linger on for a moment. Did they really see God? Well, that's what the text says. But biblical interpretation requires study and context. And sometimes there's, you know, irony. And sometimes there's, you know, there's hidden meanings. I would suggest that, you know, they're, they're sort of taken up in some sort of mystical vision. And it does say that they see God. But then follow me just for a moment here to Exodus 33. And in Exodus 33, just after the golden calf, you know, God is frustrated with the people, obviously, for good reason. And Moses seems to be pretty beside himself, too. And at some point, it's almost like, hey, how about just me and you, God, you know? And so Moses and God are talking. And in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses intercedes for the people. And you hear God straining about this. And then Moses, uh, God says to Moses in Exodus 33, verse 18, Moses cries out, show me your glory. It's like, forget about the people. What about just me and you? Just show me your glory, right? And God says, I will make all my goodness pass by you and proclaim my name. Well, that's incredible, right? But uh, but you cannot see my face, for no one can see the face of God and live. So you have to juxtaposition this seeing God in Exodus 24 um, with what it says here. Then I'll add one more wrinkle in. Jacob says in Genesis 33, when he wrestles with God and his name has changed, he says that I have seen the face of God and yet my life has been preserved. And he names the place, the face of God, Peniel, P-E-N-I-E-L, which means the face of God. And so it's kind of this mystery of like, well, is it or isn't? And then Deuteronomy ends by saying, no one has been like Moses who God has uh, dealt with face to face. And it's like, well, wait a minute, Old Testament. Can you see God or can't you? Exodus 33 seems pretty clear. And yet these other texts seem to indicate that people can see God. I have a definitive answer for you on this question tonight. Turn with me to John 1. 
And John 1, um, in the great Logos hymn, at the very end of that, there's a little clue here. And I think that John may just be looking back to the Sinai scene or maybe to that Jacob scene. But he's dealing with this, can you see God or not? And he answers it definitively. Here it is in uh, John 1, verse 17. He's talking about the Logos, right? In the beginning with God, all this beautiful stuff, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. But then in verse 17, it's like, why are you going into Moses suddenly? You know, um, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What does that have to do with the Logos, the eternal divine nature of the Son? And then you see in verse 18 why he mentions this. No one, udes, it's a very strong negative. It's, it's like absolutely nobody. Say it with me. Udes means nobody. No one has seen God, but the only Son is in the bosom of the Father. He has made him known. I think what John is doing is heading off this question that has been lingering in Judaism, that you've got people like Moses, maybe Elijah, Jacob, and these great figures who are said to have seen God, and even in our Sinai story. And yet John says, no, they didn't really see God. Whatever rhetorically happened there, they had this great communion with God. They didn't actually see God face to face. The only one who has seen him is the one who's been gazing at him from all of eternity, now gazed at us on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the new Moses, is the only one who's ever seen God. So from the apostolic standpoint of the New Testament, it settles the question. Ultimately, no one has seen God except the divine Son, who then reveals the face of God to us on the cross in his resurrection and um, in the Eucharist. So there we go. Uh, Leonard here on screen. Go ahead and take the next question. I just wanted to ask you, um, and I kind of already know the answer to this question, but I wanted to see what you had to say about reconciling Exodus 24, verse 8, where Moses prickles the blood of the people, along with Matthew 27, 25, where the Jewish people invoke either, I think, a blessing or a curse on themselves, ultimately a blessing, for saying the blood beyond ourselves and our children. Hmm. Can you read that verse for us as we all kind of turn there so we can kind of hear it? It's Matthew 27, 25. I'm missing this man's blood. Did it yourselves? And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Well, I mean, in some ways it goes back to this whole notion I was saying earlier about uh, covenants, is that covenants are not, covenant is different than a contract, right? If we think about it in in modern terms, we might get the idea that, well, this is just like a, you know, like I got a, a contract with, uh, you know, my my cell phone carrier or my car lease. And that couldn't be further from the Jew, the Jewish idea of covenant. Contracts are exchanges of, of, of goods and services, right? I do this for you, quid pro quo, you do that for me. Covenants in the ancient world and in scripture are an exchange of persons. And just about the only notion we have left in the world, any vestige of that beautiful ancient idea of exchange of persons is marriage. That's what a marriage is. A marriage is a covenant, right? It's an exchange of persons. Um, and it's very, very different from prostitution, which is a quid pro quo, contractual, you know, uh, this for that, right? That's not, that's not a, a covenant, but a, a contract in a, uh, not a good one. <laughs> but, but the idea in scripture uh, covenantally is that there is an exchange of persons that's best typified in the mystery and image of marriage. Now, if you go back then to the covenants of the Old Testament, right? One, one very interesting scene of covenants and blood is in Genesis 
15. We don't have time to unpack it. You can read it on your own. You can probably get like a, one of the study Bibles and Catholic study Bibles and work your way through it or something like that. But the basic idea is this smoking pot is very, very strange image where God, you know, this image of God passes through uh, the parts of these animals. And the way I've explained that to my own seminarians at Mundelein Seminary is that it's, it's kind of an image of God will step in and intervene and sacrifice himself, right? He, he puts himself at stake for the sake of the people, Genesis chapter 15. Another example is in Genesis 22, when, you know, the, the knife of Abraham goes up, right? Because God says, you know, he, he asked him to sacrifice his son to test his worthiness, to test his loyalty to God. Um, let's ponder that just for a second, right? That scene in Genesis 22 called the Akedah or binding of Isaac is an instrumental scene in the covenantal story with, with Abraham and for all of us. Here's why. All of the promises, the three great promises of land and kingship and blessing of all the nations that God promises to Abraham in Genesis 12 pass through Isaac. They all pass through Isaac. No Isaac, no greatness of Abraham. You're not the great father because you don't have a son. So he gives, God gives um, the gift of a sonship to Abraham. And then he says, um, can I, um, you know, can I, can I have that back? Can I take that back, right? Now, Abraham is a choice. You made a contract with me, God. I have it right here. You know, you're going to bless me and all that? No. Abraham says, the Lord will provide. Let us go yonder and worship. He understands once again that relationship with God in this context, because he's the living God, is everything. And even if it requires, heaven forbid, a blood sacrifice, I'll do what this God says, because he will provide. And then he raises the knife and God says, I was never going to, gotcha, you know, it's never going to harm a hair on his head. But here's the way I would, I would in closing, um, the, think about that scene. Abraham loves God for who he is, not for what God does. And that's the way we want to see these covenants, right? That Abraham loves God for who God is, not merely for what he does. And that's a very important spiritual insight for us that we can learn from, right? It's good to thank God. We ought to thank God for the blessings, but for only loving him because of the things that he does for my marriage, for my job, for this and for that, then there's something more. He wants that loving relationship with us. And so to your question, I think what the people realize is kind of working in reverse. If we turn away from God, then in some sense, we merit the consequences that are laid out in the scriptures, whether here in the scene with Pilate, right, which is kind of self-judgment scene, or if you go back to the Exodus story, when the blood is on them, they're now part of this. They're not in the grandstands. They're on the field. They are bound by this, which is why at the end of, of the story of the Pentateuch in Deuteronomy chapter 28 through 30, you get the listing lists of blessings and curses. And Moses finally says, he's kind of had it. He's like, look, choose life. Here you go. Blessings and curses. The way is laid out for you. And now you have to decide. And so for us, I think it means being prayerful every day, being remembered that we're children of grace. We belong to God. We're sons and daughters. He's not a taskmaster. But still, we have a responsibility as best as we can to follow him and to trust him in that loving covenantal relationship. This next question, doctor, comes from Jack, and he points out in Exodus 24, 4, it says, Moses wrote down the words of the Lord. And then at uh, 24, 12, it is written uh, that, well, God is writing uh, the law. I'll give you the stone tablets on which I have written. Uh, so his question is, what parts of the Torah are the parts written by Moses and what are the parts written by God? 
Ooh, that's a really great question. Of course, God wrote all of it. So Moses is his agent here, right? But again, a Jewish perspective on this is not whether, you know, Moses is the is the instrument and agent or or, you know, or or someone else. Obviously, it all comes from God. And then of course, they have to be smashed and rewritten again. But I like that idea very much that you find in ancient Judaism that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk that ultimately to see this as that the gift of the law is only something that happens like transactionally on, transactionally on Sinai is far too late. The book of Sirach has it right that ultimately in God's mind, because this is all about bringing people into relation, this is only the manifestation of the law, which is an important action. Don't get me wrong. But the book of Sirach understands that mystically, this isn't the plan of God from, from the very beginning of time, before the beginning of time. That's where I would, I think, leave it. We'll end with one more question uh, from Inez here on screen. Go ahead, Inez. In the book of Jeremiah, uh, thir Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, the law is written, uh, God says that he's going to write the law in our heart. The people of Israel were sprinkled with blood. The blood is found by the heart, and I imagine that they, in the, even with their basic science, they could understand that. And at the same time, what you're talking about, Sirach, Sirach, it sounds like if Abraham also had the law in the heart, since there was no written law. Connection, if there's anything be, among all those things. Yeah, it's, 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 there's a number of really great points in there, and I'll try to tease them out a little. So first of all, with regard to Abraham, again, this is kind of mystagogy. It's mystical reflection in Sirach because he's, he's kind of tapping into a spiritual understanding of how is it that Abraham, who preceded the law, could be, you know, could be seen as righteous, right? And it ultimately comes through in the story of Abraham, because, and Paul picks this up, he says, God saw Abraham's righteousness and credited to him, sorry, God saw Abraham's faith and credited to him as righteousness. So ultimately, you could say it's something like God's after that faithfulness, not simply looking at you know, text and reading the law, but this law that's written on the heart. And I think that's a beautiful thing. The, the next thing I'd say about Jeremiah is that this is a later stage, right? Mm -hmm. After the giving of the law, what you're talking about in Jeremiah is what's called the, the promise of the new covenant, right? Jeremiah 31, 33. And I know you, most of you know it, or you can look it up later, but let's just read it quickly to make sure we understand what the promise is before we go any further with this last question here. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Now, remember what I said earlier? This is paying big dividends now about that, the threefold meaning of Israel. This is that third one, which is the northern kingdom. So now we've got a divided kingdom historically, but Jeremiah is saying God's going to somehow unite that. Now, that didn't happen under David. It didn't happen under Solomon. It didn't happen up to the time of Jesus, but it did happen in a sacramental and a spiritual and in some sense historical way. When Jesus Christ draws the 12 apostles together, we get then the birth of the church, right, at Pentecost. So that does happen in the actual new covenant. But Jeremiah seems to be anticipating the, the Davidic covenant. So we have these major movements in the Old Testament covenantally. Abraham, Genesis 12 to 22, and then we have Moses, Exodus 20, and then finally David in 2 Samuel 7. It's a movement upward and outward towards a greater and greater manifestation of the new covenant. Last thing I'll tell you is that when you read the books of the Psalms, 
and the wisdom literature, what you're looking at are the books of the Davidic covenant. And maybe you're thinking, I didn't know there were books of the Davidic covenant. There's books of the Mosaic covenant, right? We've Mm -hmm. got the books of the Pentateuch, the law. But you could say in some sense that the the Psalms, the book of Sirach, book of Job, the book book, book of Proverbs, the wisdom books are kind of like the legislation of this new covenant that Jeremiah is talking about. Now, why is this important? Because when you look at the Psalms and wisdom, they're very, very different than the books of the law. Books of the law are wonderful, but in many ways, they're measured externally in very stark ways, right? Read the Decalogue, read the commandments. The Psalms go inside. They take us into the interiority that Jeremiah is getting at. The wisdom books are kind of like God's international law. And so if you think of the Psalms as attributed to to David and the wisdom books attributed to Solomon and call all of that the Davidic literature, what you see is a movement in as beyond Sinai towards Calvary. The Davidic covenant is kind of like this halfway time in the game where we're moving not away from the law, but we're moving closer to the new law, moving closer to Jesus Christ. And therefore, it should begin to, the, the biblical story should begin to prepare us towards that ultimate climax of the new covenant. So in some sense, it's not as though, you know, we can't make comparisons between, you know, Moses and Jesus. We can. But in some sense, when we read the Psalms, we see that the, the, the beautiful praise of the Psalms and the wisdom tradition, in some sense, we're closer to the language uh, and the style of Jesus's own preaching because he is the new David. And so, yes, he's the new Moses, but he's also the new David. And there's a sense in which we're moving uh, in the in the covenant that Jeremiah anticipates, not only towards David, but ultimately towards the new Moses and the new David in Jesus Christ, who is our all in all. And I think we'll have to, unfortunately, leave it there. Thank you so much again, Dr. Smith, from all of us here uh, for your careful preparation and time spent preparing this lecture uh, and time with us this evening. It was, uh, it was beautiful. It gives us much to ponder over the coming weeks. And uh, Dr. Smith, if, uh, if I could ask you uh, to please close us in prayer this evening, that'd be wonderful. Be very happy to. Let's pray together in unity. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, you are the Lord of unity, and you are the Lord who gives us the gift of worship. May our hearts be blessed by the scriptures. May our minds and our emotions and our affectivity of our hearts all be directed to you tonight in praise as we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Holy Moses, pray for us, and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, pray for us. God bless you all. See you soon. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.